Hello and welcome to The Sacred. And welcome back to our new series. I am so delighted to be in conversation with you again. The start of series is always my favorite time when we can release all these conversations that we've been having. And especially after our wonderful Sacred Live that we had with Oliver Berkman in the break where I got to meet um, a bunch of you. You've been sending in your thoughts about that. Um, So I'm just delighted to be back. If we haven't, uh, if you haven't heard my voice before, my name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values uh, as individuals and as society, and particularly about the people behind the positions that shape our common life. It is a project about practicing curiosity and empathy over tribalism, and seeking to understand the hinterlands, really, of a wide range of humans. In more than five years of production, I've spoken to communists and conservative MPs, songwriters and scientists, atheists and archbishops, and asked them what is sacred to them? What are their deepest values that they are trying to live by? I hope these conversations are a tiny act of resistance to the forces which are always trying to sell us three-dimensional images, three-dimensional stereotypes of the people who are not like us, and thereby, maybe deliberately, maybe accidentally, drive us further apart. And if you think this kind of work, this kind of conversation, this intention is an important thing, I'd love to ask you right at the start of this series, would you consider sharing the podcast on your social media? If you have social media, leaving us a review, if you haven't already left us a review, and a huge thank you to the people that have. I've been reading them and they are so encouraging. Some of them have really helpful suggestions. We love reviews. And if neither of those feel right for you, maybe just sending an episode to a friend who you'd like to have a deeper conversation with. The reason I keep asking, and I know it gets boring and you skip over this bit and podcast hosts are always asking you this, but it's particularly in our case because the kind of content that makes us angrier and more scared, the kind of content that um, uh, maybe appeals to the worst parts of ourselves, spreads like wildfire, spreads easily, is incredibly clickable, right? Because of the problem of the human heart, because of these human-made algorithms. And so content that forms us in healthier ways, as we hope this is, might need a bit of help. And you could be the person to give it some help today. And I'm pretty sure this will be an easy episode to share because my guest is so wonderful. Abby Morgan OBE is a Welsh-born playwright and screenwriter who must now be a very youthful grand dame of UK film and television. Her credits are too long to recite, but you might know her work from The Iron Lady, The Split or The Hour. She's recently written her first book, This Is Not A Pity Memoir, about the illness, coma and subsequent serious brain injury of her long-term partner Jacob and her own breast cancer during that time and the very unusual psychological syndrome uh, that Jacob experienced in the aftermath and they had to deal with together. We spoke about her journey into writing, how stories give us our sense of self, and how do you make any kind of meaning out of the multiple tragic events that she has experienced. There are some reflections for me at the end. I really hope you enjoy listening. Abby, you are a tender of words and I have lobbed a very big and a slightly less common word at you right at the start of an interview when it's early in the morning and we're both waking up. So before I ask what is sacred to you, I wanted to ask how you got on with the word. How did it land with you? How did it feel? 
What the word sacred? The word sacred. People have a very big range of reactions to it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I lay in bed last night thinking about it and I was realising it's quite challenging to be asked what's sacred to you. There are the obvious things, obviously one's children, people that we love. But when I try and focus on what's sacred to me, you know, irrespective of anyone else, I find that much harder, actually. And it made me realise, you know, I have the most fundamental, basic, um, sacred things like my coffee every day is pretty damn sacred to me. But it's been an interesting word to mull over because it has made me realise there are certain things that I try to keep sacred. That I, So it's a battle for me. But keeping something sacred is quite a battle. I guess what's sacred to me are two things, truth and time. Hmm. So time is pretty sacred. And I don't mean that necessarily in a kind of, wah, you know, uh, every morning I, 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 I open my palms to the sun. I mean that... I'm constantly working to a deadline. And what I realise is those deadlines filter into every element of my life. And certainly when my children were small, I think I, as a mother, I was constantly creating deadline. <clears throat> and my deadlines can be so frenzied that they can be in the context of conversation where I'm thinking, how's this conversation going to wind up rhythmically? How do we get through that? And one of the things that I try to give myself now and I'm aware that I erode is time because the deadline is always about chasing, racing against time. You know, you're always trying to get something in on a Friday when really you need a couple more days. Um, You're always trying to split yourself. I think this is not unusual if you're a mother and a partner and a friend and, you know, someone who has a busy career and a busy life, then that happens. So I guess time is is central. And then the other thing is truth. And I say this tongue in cheek as someone who spends every day, every day creating fiction is that what I'm trying to do as a fiction writer is trying to find some universal truths. And those can be things that feel, I have to go back to my instinct and think this feels true to something that I've experienced, but also true to something that is in the room or within the context of something I've observed or something I have imagined. But I try and what's pretty sacred is when I'm writing, I'm looking for that. Mm. That doesn't mean I don't create and have to write my way through endless, you know, endless kind of forests of rubbish and sort of, you know, things that aren't genuine. And, but I suppose truth and authenticity is something that is quite sacred to me. And authenticity as a person, you know, the people I like most, we're all struggling to be authentic. You know, we're all given so many messages every day about how to be, how to appear. But actually to be really authentic, to try and go back to that part of yourself, certainly with some of the challenges that I've faced over the last few years, have been absolutely essential, but also as a writer and an observer and as someone who who commentates on life, trying to find the authentic and trying to find the truth in a situation is is it, it's the truffle that every truffle pig is trying to sniff out. You know, it's 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 sort of part of my daily, you know, the daily thing I do each day. Yeah, if that makes sense. That's beautiful, and I am giving myself a gold star because I often. As I'm getting to know a guest ahead of speaking to them, I often try and guess what their sacred value is. And yours was so clearly truth and honesty coming through in your memoir in an incredibly, I loved the book, by the way, incredibly beautiful way. So I'm sure that we'll circle (laughs) back to what that means, particularly when you're trying to tell your own story. But first, I want to Mm. um, get a sense of where you've come from. You know, what's the beginning of your story? And particularly, if you think back to your childhood, were there any big ideas in the air that felt particularly formative for you? I suppose if you grow up with creatives, which is what I 
did. I grew up with a, 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 a you know a mother who was an actress and a father who was a director, um, and I grew up in theatres and on TV studios and you know constantly seeing plays uh, from a very young age and being in rehearsals and understanding the kind of metronome of the creator's life, which is very feast and famine, and you know that 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 plays and first nights and production has a rhythm to it. Um, and I guess one of the things that it really you know, form such a strong blueprint with, within me is that there is a sort of natural life has, has, has a natural structure and stories have natural shape. And I think a lot of that w- w- came from that very formative period when I was incredibly young, maybe even nonverbal, you know, when I was constantly around that world and constantly around storytelling and my, my parents, you know, not without being too pretentious, but it, you know, I had a lot of references. I had a lot of play references. We had, we knew a lot of playwrights, we knew a lot of actors, we knew a lot of directors, so I could see work being created. And so I realized very early, very early on that, you know, art and the creation of art wasn't something other. It wasn't something that happened somewhere else. It was something that happened around your kitchen table. It was something that occupied your day. It was how you paid your bills. And so for me, art at the center and being a creative has always just felt like in the same way if your dad was a plumber. Mm. You'd hopefully know how to unblock a sink somehow, you know, just by the sort of what observing. I think I, I I gained a lot of value from growing up in that environment and just understanding that art is a way to express and reflect and should be absolutely central in everyone's life. Yeah. And I think I was very fortunate because at the time I came through, I, I came through state school education, but at, when I say came through state education, state education I had two or three really key players within the arts that I came across through my education so you know drama and the making of plays and dance for me was incredibly important um and so I felt like art was a was a huge not form of both escapism and also expression and a way to get to that truer place really yeah and because of your parents um artistic careers you ended up moving around a lot what's your kind of how do you feel about that now, looking back? I think it makes you very chameleon um, and it makes you shapeshift. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that both my, 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 my brother and my sister and I, we have all lived in houses now for probably 20 years, the same house. Mm. And I think that is an absolute reaction to um, moving around a lot. So it was a very peripatetic childhood. I mean, obviously we had periods, you know, we had you know, three, four year periods in houses and in places, but we were always, there was always a feeling that something was temporary and that actually this was not home. And weirdly, it was only till I came to London that I really felt I'd come home because I think London is a city of strangers. It's, it's, a, it's an everywhere place. People come from all over the world to London. And so there's something very weirdly welcoming about it. And it allows you to be quite invisible and yet absolutely part of it. So I think it allowed it, it, it encouraged me to kind of embrace change. Having said that, the stability I always wanted to give my children was I wanted them to grow up mm. uh, in the same house that, you know, they'd spent most of their childhood in. Yeah. You said this beautiful thing about remembering being in theatres all your childhood, remembering the scratchiness of theatre seats on your cheek, which mm. just really stayed with me as this image of a little child curled up in the stool somewhere. And we'll come back mm. to kind of, spirituality, religion, meaning making, how that interacts with stories. But various guests from the theatre world have said to me that their experience of theatre is something akin to a religious experience, that there is something ritually powerful about sitting with strangers in the dark. And for various guests, it kind of is there. 
religious yeah. life. Do you does does that ring true for you? Does that feel um, like it echoes in your childhood, or was it something different for you? I, I think I think I think creativity, and certainly from a from a very young age, I, I understood the power of words being spoken communally in a room which I suppose you could you know you could see that in a church you could see that in a temple you know you could see that in a synagogue you know so it's it's it, you know I recognize the the kind of metaphor of theater as, as as church I suppose for me that faith and faith for me is but the, the strength of faith is that it should not be proven it's a dedication to something that doesn't absolute has always been a conversation it's always been a philosophical conversation for me uh, and so I always have an internal voice talking to someone. Now, I think for some people that's their God. I think for me, it's a kind of internal uh, conversation that I've had from a really early age that was that was encouraged within my own family and my own household. I mean, interestingly, my, I went to a Church of England school for a large period. Um, and then when it came for confirmation, we were about to move again. And my father just couldn't understand why I'd want to be confirmed mm. because he was not religious. You know, my parents and my mother was actually, you know, would consider herself a Christian, but, you know, we rarely went to church. So I, I understood very quickly that everybody had their own interpretation of religion and faith, where I always knew an audience was held, where I always knew a place where people listened and sometimes and often didn't listen because we all seen being in a theatre and looked at our watches and sort of thought, oh, my God, how long, how much longer is this going on for? But I did recognise the power of theatre and I did recognise the power of that space. So I think. I think what's interesting is I was a really shy performer. Mm. You know, my parent, you know, my sister was an actor. I'm married to an actor. Um, my father was originally an actor. My mother's an actress, you know, so everybody around me, my brother-in-law's an actor that, you know, everybody got, w w there was always a sense that they were ready to perform. And so I was actually very shy of that. So I think in a weird way, it kept me even more in this internal place. So what I would love was structure and words. And I still, you know, even, even now, I love, you know, I love the plays that allow me to escape, but the plays that don't, they'll often let me riff and I'll start to think of a structure of something else. So it's, it's often a meditative space for me, which I think is what, you know, is what you want from a place of worship. You want from a place of togetherness. You want from a communal space where you're just being given time to listen mm -hmm. and uh, not react. That's one of the big things is I think as a writer, you're always having to react to the world. And it's one of the things that I understand about burnout is part of why burnout happens is that for a while, you just don't want to react to anything. You just want to sit and observe and listen for a while, you know? Yeah. But I'm right in thinking for someone who's had this com completely stellar writing career, you didn't really start writing till university. Why was that? No, I oh, like I wasn't. I really wasn't academic. I mean, I've got a you know. I was seven years ago, like many people now in the world, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which made a huge sense of my my you know academic or my lack of academic achievement. Um, I found you know I found school and the kind of classrooms incredibly hard, and I just wasn't one of those kids who was you know I didn't sit and write poems. I think I wrote one truly terrible poem when I was 15, but I didn't I didn't express myself in that way, but what I did do was I was a storyteller in terms of I was a terrible liar. You know, I would always exaggerate. The story would always get bigger. You know, and what I discovered when I was at university was that I was sort of forced to write a monologue and you know, it was a kind of bad Alan Bennett rip-off. Um but what it allowed me to experience was being listened to mm -hmm. and I guess the feeling I had observed when I was very young in the theatre was suddenly I was part of that experience in a very active way. 
Um, and I guess that's where I really discovered this kind of not only just this passion, but just sort of kinship with it. It just felt like the right place to be for me. Yeah. And I, that that first monologue, it was then sort of off the blocks. What this is such a hard question, but what is it about story and the process of making them and telling them? that you found so addictive kind of what are you mining when you're working on a story well you know it's the phrase you know, even chaos has a form and so often I'm trying to work through the chaos of my mind I guess for me storytelling on a kind of creative professional level is a way to enhance and embrace and try and capture experiences or thoughts or theses that I see in the world and just and also entertain you know entertained through character, entertained through jeopardy, entertained through drama, entertained through through comic moments. But then I think on a kind of bigger level, um, you know, I'm thinking much more about, you know, I've, I've had to think about ideas of mortality and lifelines and how long we get on this planet and how long will our narr- stories be. And I find it kind of very interesting now to go right back to my childhood and think I'm 54 now. And uh, in many ways, that feels like a very early chapter of my life. Those are the early chapters. But now, it's you know, I'm looking ahead and thinking, well, how many more chapters do I have? And so I think a lot about rhythm and where the balance of my life has been and, you know, where, where what the drivers have been. Mm. I mean, no one tells you when you hit 50 that the drivers, the motivations, the, 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 the kind of threads, they're, they're harder to understand and find because we're so geared up till 50 to sort of tick all the boxes, you know, um, you know, walk talk all the basic things when we're children connect communicate you know grow up have an education fall in love you know or not you know find 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 happiness family children or you know whatever other way you want to have your family you know career achievement successes aging our children growing up our children leaving home and now you're 54 and you're like okay well what are my drivers now so this bit of the narrative, this bit of the story, I'm thinking a lot about at the moment. Mm. Um, probably in the way that I would think about it on a sort of scriptorial point of view. And the way I look at it is I look around for my models. I look around for other people's stories and start to reflect on other people's stories as a way to try and make sense of where I am myself at the moment. Yeah. You've expressed so beautifully what I... Th- There's a one of my favourite philosophers called Alistair McIntyre and he had this kind of narrative conception of the self... the storied self he calls it and and talks about restricting stories particularly from children but for all of us being a being almost a form of abuse because they are the raw material by which we narrate ourselves to ourselves when you look back at the stories that Mm. you have been interested in the stories that you've told so many different beautiful stories can you see like common threads or common themes that always make you go yes that's the story I want to tell well, it's interesting because I don't often reflect back on my work and I very rarely watch it mm. again or read it again even. Um, certainly, you know, not my plays. But I think uh, but I think if you ask somebody, I think I think there's loss is a big thing in my work, um, overcoming loss. That, you know, there are always quests. There are always some kind of journey. Someone is always trying to reconnect, refine someone, find an answer to something. I mean, these are the basics of stories, really. Um but but I can I can see certain themes occupy me, and I, I I know places where I'm comfortable. I know places, and that's not always a good thing. You know, I've just spent the last five years writing a show which I loved writing, which was a whole group of women in an office. But part of why I've chosen not to keep writing that show is that I got really comfortable. 
And I was like, you know, actually, I can't keep repeating the same thing. I need to mm. now find what's the next thing I want to tell, because otherwise, I, I guess the stories that I'm choosing to tell, they always inherently feel like they move me on as well as a person, or mm. maybe, you know, they motivate me to move on. So I always try and find stories outside of myself yeah. that will slightly push me forward as well. I was listening um, in preparation for speaking to you to the Woman's Hour that you did. Nope, the Desert Island Discs that you did. Uh, and you have this yes. now incredibly beautiful and heartbreaking kind of final statement about feeling like your life had all the jigsaw pieces in it mainly. And jokingly, you know, not the Oscar. Everyone always has a, you know, a piece that they're missing. Mm. But, and you sound very, very grateful and peaceful. And there is a sense of, you know, mm. narrative conclusion <laughs> to the to the end of that interview. Mm. But it was a few months before what you just what you describe, I would make clear so that it doesn't sound too flippant as a sort of giant, unexpected plot twist. What what happened with Jacob? Could you mm. just tell the beginning of that for us? Yeah, so in in I think I think I did the Desert Island Discs maybe in either the April of 2017, but anyway, or April 2018 even, but in June 2018, Jacob, my partner of nearly 18 years, um, collapsed with a brain seizure. Uh, we later realised it was it, it was a reaction to some medication he, he had been on. Um, but what ensued after that was that Jacob kind of went into kind of a total physical, cognitive, psychotic breakdown over the next two weeks and was placed in a in a medically induced coma for seven months. And he woke up again in uh, January 2019. And it was very apparent that Jacob was very changed and that actually whilst he had survived, what we discovered was uh, a rare form of encephalitis, anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. He himself had now had to learn how to, you know, walk again and connect again and find agency and language and and really find himself again. But what was very key and at the centre of that was that Jacob had also developed a really rare delusion called Capra delusion, which is the belief in imposters and doubles. And it can often be focused on the person that they're closest to, or it could be a house, or it could even be a pet. But with Jacob, it was focused on me. And so when Jenny, when Jacob woke up in, in, in those early months of 2019, um, he believed that I was an imposter and that uh, over time he came to except that I was someone who was working for the state, helping to look after him and his children. And so this, this, this kind of extraordinary period happened where Jacob had gone through this very, you know, at times truly critical medical um, experience. But actually, as we then evolved into his rehab and his recovery and he came home, we also had to deal with, for the, for the next 18 months, two years, Jacob was really gripped by this delusion that I was someone else. And so... It, it, you know, that in itself, in terms of that big plot twist, was 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 really shocking and and kind of flipped, you know, our, um, Jacob and my life completely upside down. But also, obviously, the lives of our family and in particular the lives of our children, who at the time were um, fourteen and sixteen. You write about this so beautifully, and that whole, you know, any any part of that story would have been a very difficult experience to go through. Um, Six months with your beloved in a coma is a is a e extraordinarily formative 
time. And that you write about this scene, and I am thinking of it as scenes because you think of it as scenes and we think of life as scenes <laughs> in a cafe mm. um, with a friend whilst you mm. were still in the coma who asked you, what is your biggest fear? Do, can you just recall that moment for me and how you think about it now looking back? Yeah, I mean, actually, funny enough, I think in the book, the friend says, what if he doesn't remember who you are? And I don't think I believed that was possible. That felt like such a trope, such a cliche. And I think that was one of the things when it happened was it just felt slightly ridiculous. You know, I'd watched movies where it happened. Um, and, it, you know, I hadn't realised that, you know, in a way I hadn't realised, of course, as someone who makes life and creates that into fiction, then that has to come from somewhere. So, you know, I think, I think, I think my initial reaction was when Jake did first wake up, and you know, he was a little bit like a kind of bear coming out of hibernation, and so I, I kind of put down his grumpiness and his slightly kind of strange, kind of dark-eyed stare of me as just he just didn't know, he just couldn't orientate himself, and but there was very one clear moment where Jacob was finally off his ventilator, he'd been off the ventilator, and he was brought out in a wheelchair and all of Jake's family and his young, you know, nephews and nieces had come to see him and our children were there and he was reunited with our dog. And it was an incredibly moving moment as we wheeled him around uh, this square, Queen Square. If you've ever been, Jake was at the National Hospital and there's this this square, which I think if anyone's ever been there, they know it's a, it's a very strange sort of almost like Richard Curtis-esque kind of rom-com square because there's so many kind of changes of seasons that go on there and there's always, you know, extraordinary you know, families with obviously very sick children and lovers and builders. And, you know, it's a sort of strange place, but 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 I took huge comfort from it. And we were walking Jacob around the square and I'm filming him. And the, there are two things I find really unsettling about it. One is that I'm talking to Jacob like he's a child. I'm saying, Jake, look, isn't it amazing? Smile. Um, and the other is that Jacob is increasingly irritated by this person behind the screen. And it was around that time that I started to truly suspect Jacob didn't know who I was. And it was Valentine's Day where it was really distilled when I came in with this cheesy red hot balloon and the nurse encouraged him to give me a Valentine's gift, which was a sort of kind of one of those cheap garage roses, you know, in plastic. And Jake looked so horrified and embarrassed me that when she said, you know, give your wife the rose, he went, that's not my wife. And then and at the time, you know, you know, you talk about the the screenplay writer in me, there was always that voice bartering. I was always bartering with drama. You know, I was always, you know, real terrifying, tragic moments. I was always at the time going, is this good drama? Is this a good moment? Is this a good scene? But also I was, I was always sort of playing around with things people said. So Jacob just saying, she's not my wife. At the time I was like, no, I'm not his wife. In fact, I'm his girlfriend. And in fact, that was quite an issue for Jake and I that we'd never got married. So, you know, or even those little things I would gra grasp and try and shake and change and reshape and, and make them work for my story, my version of the story. Um, but that sort of form of interrogation and that form of storytelling became absolutely essential to survive the experience, I think. One of the things that Jacob said to you throughout your marriage was be be present or you know stay here in the moment how much do you think that he said be careful you're gonna yeah you, you tell you tell me he said he said be careful he said he said be careful you're gonna miss your life gosh and and I think I think about that and the awful thing is I still think about that because it's amazing how you think you learn from these experiences and then old habits kick back in and you you get busy again and you you forget again and you know you said about me seeming at peace well I refer to it in the book as 
I question whether I was too smug. Mm. I got too comfortable because I think if you come from, my parents had a very acrimonious divorce. And I think if you come from divorce, it's something that you always know is, is in the wheelhouse of experience. So I had always Conti never really trusted my relationship or trusted that something could survive. And I think around about the time I did Desert Island Discs and, you know, obviously you get seduced by the narrative of that show anyway. You know, you're trying to sum up your life in whatever, seven records or something, which is pretty damn impossible. But um, uh, but I think, you know, I do I did question whether, you know, that the gods above had sort of slightly tried to yank, yank my chain and, and uh, you know, pride comes before a fall for me. So I, there are a lot of kind of quite destructive, self-flagellating elements to, to, to that. And I have had to, and I still have to work that on the kind of idea that we don't always draw these bad things to us. Then unfortunately they just happen, which is what happened with Jake. Yeah. Abby, honestly, when I read that, I had a little cry. I wanted to give you such a, I wanted to give you such a big hug, which is very impertinent because we've never met, but you are, you are so hard no, on like yourself. <laughs> You're so hard on yourself. You yeah, didn't I sound smug I'm... at all. Well, well, that's good. I mean, I don't know if I'm hard on myself. I think I am searching to be truthful. I mean, that sounds very earnest because, of course, we're all creations. We're all manufactured. You know, I've told this story of this book several times. I'm constantly catching my phrases that I've used and checking my authenticity. But I guess I'm always challenging myself. You know, it's very, you can never see the back of your head. Mm. The only way you can see the back of your head is if you put a mirror up to it. And I'm constantly trying to put a mirror up and going, what are you doing here? Why are you doing that? You know, Mm. and I think part of it is that it's hypervigilance. You know, I think if you, if you, if you grow up in a very creative, very busy, very often chaotic, often wonderful, but often difficult household, you stay very vigilant and you try and keep ahead of yourself. Mm. Um, I think what was humbling about the experience that happened to Jacob and actually subsequently also happened to me and when I had my own health scare in the middle of it all, uh, was that I realized I didn't, you know, I didn't have the ability to control the narrative. I didn't have the ability to c- take control of everything. And this is where I developed this new thing, which has been really powerful for me, which is I give my, this sounds, I can't even believe I'm saying this on air, but um, I now do this thing, which is I open my arms up literally at the most difficult moments. And I say, universe, it's in your arms. And I literally go, help me sometimes now, because I realize I cannot control everything about what's happened to us and what will happen in the future and what is happening in the world. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't think that I can affect change. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that I won't continue to be hard on myself. But I see what, what you may see as hard, I see as vigilant. Mm. And also I see as important, important to check yourself, important to interrogate yourself. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it makes you the funnest per- person at the party, I'm honest, if I'm honest. But I do think it's just part of my mechanism of how I live, you know. And honestly, it was the the you trying to write honestly about yourself is part of what makes this book so compelling and the watching in real time someone I, I had this picture of you with a rubik's with a rubik's cube like trying to make meaning out of the chaos you know is it because i was smug mm. is it because i relaxed into my life you know the the seemingly real foreshadowing of something coming which we sort of think only happening in fiction I just can't imagine it being completely Mm. head scrambling. But as far as I can tell, it's the first time you've tried to write about yourself. What was that process? Because you're you're a a character, but you're also trying 
to be true? How much did you have to force yourself mm. to be that honest and, and raw in such a beautiful way? Well, that's very nice of you. Um, well, actually, you know, I, I've always, I always remember reading about J.K. Rowling writing in cafes and then it would just pour out of her. And I was always so sort of, I mean, I've never had a thing. I've not really ever had writer's block. And I don't think writer's block is always a bad thing. I think writer's block is sometimes a moment where we just keep ourselves in a holding pattern to just try and work out where we're going forward. But I've always been able to keep writing. The problem is, is often it's junk. So what was interesting for me with, sitting down but I you know it's often junk what I write but then the structure and the mathematics and the shaping comes in and that's where the work also really begins what was interesting when I wrote this book is that I I, I wrote it during the second lockdown I think we all experienced that period during second lockdown when we'd kind of made our bread and we'd done a bit of gardening and we'd you know done endless FaceTime drinks with our girlfriends and you know bingo and quizzes with our family um, but the October lockdown felt very dark and it was one of the hardest periods as well in terms of Jake's recovery because he was home and still didn't know who I was at that point. And that was proving more and more challenging to be in a house with um, someone who you love dearly, but who thinks you're a stranger. And also with two teenagers, you know, who wanted to go out and have life and were suddenly not able to do their A-levels and their GCSEs and all of those things. So um and so it really did pour out of me. I really did have that thing where I just sat at the kitchen table when the kids were in bed, when Jake was in bed, and I'd start at kind of 10 o'clock at night, and then I would just write. And it was so therapeutic. And and yet I also knew it couldn't be therapy. And, and I think this is where the probably 20-odd years experience as a writer, screenwriter, which is always I'm doing battle with. I'm always, you know, is this a screenplay? Is this a play? Is this a, a, a memoir? Well, in truth, I think I would have made it into a play originally because I had this idea I was going to use it as part of Jake's rehab to get him back on stage. And I'd tell him the story of what had happened to him. But of course, lockdown happened, theatre's closed. So that's why suddenly writing it down, it became this way that I could communicate with the world, but also communicate with Jacob at a point where he couldn't see me and I couldn't hear him. You know, at this point, Jacob was about 25. Well, no, at that point, it was probably about 10% of himself. Uh, and he had no agency or initiation in anything. So most of the time, he just stared into the middle distance or watched endless episodes of Friends. And so this kind of very alive, very, you know, Jake and I are really big communicators. You know, he's, God knows how he's, put up with my chatter for the last 20 odd years so to have that that companion go so silent on you I think the writing became this place and this way I could carry on the conversation and so the memoir really is about I'm constantly talking to Jacob I'm not I'm constantly going you did this today you this happened to you today but also I'm talking all the time I'm stepping back going how do I take control of this how does this work what if this was a film would I cut this? I'd definitely cut this bit, you know? So I think there were so many things going on during that period um, that were kind of sanguine and gave me time to reflect. Mm. You've answered one of my questions, which was about the second person, because it's this beautiful book entirely written to, mm. to you, which is such an unusual form. Um, I can mm. very much see it as a play. I hope it eventually is a, a play as well, maybe. Maybe, we'll see. I wanted to ask, really about that um to just drill drill into a bit more into that um honesty thing and the, the line that's always stayed with me is when it's quite early on and you say um we're not married 
and I'm in bit, I'm a bit embarrassed about the fact we're not married. And I'm embarrassed mm. about the fact that I'm embarrassed that we're not married. And it, mm. it struck mm. me as this incredibly generous honesty and something deeply true that I'm sure many people reading the book have felt in life, those layers of ourselves, of the, te- the tender things and mm. then the way we shame ourselves mm. for having the tender, the tender places in ourselves. Mm. And the title of the book mm. is This Is Not a Pity Memoir. I, I just wanted you to say a little bit about what you think memoir does and what kind of, it, both its humanizing effects and what comes through as obviously in the title and elsewhere, some of your ambivalence about it and its validity or its um, mm. power. That's a very convoluted question, forgive me, but I hope you can mm. find something to grab onto. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think memoir is a kind of cool it's 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 a call to remember isn't it it's a a memoir is a moment where you you recall an experience or a moment in your life um and so that does one of two things it demands interrogation and scrutiny because we know that we create memory and and yet we also know that there are some facts and truth in that and that's always what i'm battling with in the book which is what is real and what isn't what is my construct and what's really happening whose story is it is a constant thing i'm circling in the book um, and I think, so I think for me, you know, the, the title of the book is really, it, it works on many levels. What, what's key is that it's actually one of the first conversations I have with Jacob, which I talk about in the book, which is when I met him at a dinner party for the first time was that at the time I was chasing a beautiful memoir, which was, um, Ruth Piketty's Before I Say Goodbye, which is the most stunning, uh, collection of emails and articles and, you know, bits of writing by Ruth Piketty, who was a journalist and who sadly was dying of breast cancer. And she writes about the experience of, and the sort of the, ex- the extraordinary and the ordinary of saying goodbye to those you love. At the time, she was married with two small children and she had a very dear relationship with her sister, Justine. And that, I was, I loved this book and I was chasing the film rights for it. And I was at dinner and sitting opposite me was an incredibly drunk girl. And she's, she said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I write for television. And uh, and I was you know, just starting to talk about writing. And I said, oh, I'm trying to get the film rights for this book. And she was like, God, I hate those pity memoirs. And that, that phrase, pity memoir, really stayed with me over the years. And one of the things that I think, reasons why I instantly connected with Jacob was he was sitting next to this girl and he went, I don't, I love those books. Tell me about it. And he was so open and he was really interested in storytelling and human storytelling. And so for me, that was like that ping I talk about, that kind of moment, which I've never told my children this, but I still believe that I don't think there's one person for us. I think there are several people for us. But I think when we hear that internal ping with somebody, trust it. You know, it's a real, it's a moment of deep connection. And so the title is very dear to me whilst also sounding cynical. And what I come to the conclusion in the book is that there are no such things as pity memoirs. They're just words on pages. And if they mean something to someone, then they're but worth being said, you know, worth being written. And that's really what I feel about the gift of the memoir is that you're not necessarily, you know, you are, yes, you are trying to tell a story, but you're also journeying with someone through your own experience. And the gift you give anyone else is to go, and the gift that they give you back by buying that book and reading it is that they make you feel less alone. And so for me, writing that book was about feeling less alone. And that's really at the heart of what everything I do. If I'm absolutely honest, that's where I write. Because I'm always writing to say, have you ever felt like this? 
Can you identify this character? Can I tell you this story? If you listen to this story, will you feel the way I feel like about it? Do you care about these people? Do you care about this ending? Will you journey with me for the next six, 60 minute episodes? I'm asking you to come with me. And if they do, and when I occasionally read those tweets and those Instagrams and often the bad reviews, sometimes the good reviews, um, then I still, I feel that's the thing I'm looking for is that I often write to just connect with people, you know, and it's a beautiful thing, you know, screenplay writing, because I always say, I never know if I am the birth mother or the surrogate, because what happens when you write a screenplay and you create a group of characters is they very quickly get adopted by a director and a producer and then actors, and then they become their own. And then you have a show out in the world that you can be in a hotel room and suddenly it comes on and think, God, who wrote that? You know, it becomes something so separate from you. And I love that. I love something moving on from me. And in fact, that's why I don't really like to look back at my work. I like to just keep going forward because the job of it was, the job and the experience of writing it was the thing. Mm. That was the thing that was important. It wasn't about me sort of laying out. I never keep a single screenplay. I haven't got a single screenplay. My sister who works for me, my very dear sister, is currently trying to archive all my work. And I think she's tearing her hair out because she's like, why did you never keep anything? But I don't keep anything. I throw everything away. I'm a a mass consumer, I'm afraid. I can't use it and then I move on, you know. Wow. What you said about um, art makes us feel less alone is what I see Strong, so strongly in 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 so many stories that that you know that storied self is kind of searching the world for bits of ourselves reflected back to feel real or to feel kind of valid. But I think particularly in memoir and true stories, there's the there's the relief. C.S. Lewis talks about that you know, reading something and saying, "Oh, you feel that too." I thought I was the only one, and it it does feel like. Mm. kind of intensely humanizing one of the things I found did that particularly in your book is this kind of and it's quite a subtle strand slash question about spirituality and religion you talk about Jacob's kind of cultural Judaism but strong atheism and at various points you know when you're going through this valley of the shadow of death people are praying for Mm. you you light a candle Mm. I kind of love it feels like there's many stories in the world of people who are very assuredly religious and stories in the world of people who are definitely Mm. sure they are not. Could you say a little bit more about that complexity Mm. and particularly how it played out during that very intense Mm. period with Jacob? Yeah, I mean, I think faith, I said to you, you know, before, I think faith is the belief in something that can't be proven and otherwise it wouldn't be faith. It would be, it would be something more absolute. And so I think the journey, I think marriage is faith. I think relationships of faith, you know, nobody can be no 100% someone. So the act of loving someone or supporting someone, it's an act of faith, you know. Um, And maybe the only love that we really have is the unconditional love of our children because inherently they become something, they come from us physically, but actually even they become their own people in their own right. So um, faith's really interesting. You know, I, I talked about that philosophical relationship I have with another person in my head, you know, that could be the viewer, that could be the internal voice I carried very early on. Um, I remember making a deal with God when I was about 13 to try and get my sister into drama school. And I said, if you get into drama school, I'll believe you. And she didn't get in. And I remember giving up at that point. I literally remember that as a moment. But actually, what I've come to see is that, you know, you don't get what you ask for necessarily what you ask for is not what you expected you know so I think the experience that happened with Jacob was very interesting because the thing I had to hold on to 
and actually was very easy to hold on to. You know, people often said to me, God, didn't you want to leave Jacob? And that wasn't ever in my mind because the thing I held on to and still hold on to to this day is I like Jacob so much. I don't just love Jacob, I like him. I really like this man. And so it became bigger than me and him. And it became bigger than whether we were going to survive as a couple. What really became important to me is that he was such a nice, he's such a good person in the world. And so I wanted him to come back in the world. And and so I had huge faith in him. And also I had two children with Jacob and I had, we both, you know, we had, we've got two very loving families who were around us and supported us through this. And I I realized in that moment that Jake was bigger than my relationship with him. And of course I knew he was a father and a son and a friend and a, a brother, but Jacob had always really been mine. And I was incredibly territorial of that at the beginning. And then when Jacob didn't recognize me anymore, one of the things I realized was that and I talk about it in the book, is it's that it's not that he didn't know who I was anymore, it's that he didn't know who he was anymore. And so the job became about helping Jake find his way back into himself. And I don't know what God is. I, 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 I think God is whatever you need it to be. You know, I genuinely, whatever you want your God, whether it's, you know, Allah or if it's Jesus or if it's Hashem or if it's, you know, if it's chocolate, I don't know what your God is, you know, but all I know is the thing that carried me through. And I talk about it before is I can't describe it, but I talk, and it sounds whimsical. If you put this on a t-shirt, I swear no one will buy it, but it's a kind of hum of love. And I just felt this, 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 this love pulled me through. And I still think also love is interest. I know it sounds ridiculous, but if you're interested in something, you're interested in that plant, or you're interested in that conversation with a stranger on the bus, or you're interested in in what's happening in Ukraine. There is love there. There's love. There's a connection. So for me, I never lost that level connection, you know. Um, and even when Jake didn't know me, one of the things that was really clear to me is that Jake, something in Jake defied what what the psychosis was doing in him. Something in him didn't make sense, you know. So you know, what was what, what was key, and I'm only saying this without sort of dropping it heavily in the room, but I, if anyone reads the book, I, I'm often, people often say, you, don't, you, you brush over this, but I also got breast cancer in the middle of this, which was the, another really bad plot twist, which we know about. But one of the things when I had breast cancer is that for Jacob, he couldn't understand why he felt so sad about it because he felt sad because I was this person working for the state, but he couldn't understand why he was truly so pained by it. And... He st- what I started to realize is, is that whilst he had forgotten me emotionally, intellectually, he didn't feel anything for me. He didn't feel anything for me. There was something about my physicality that started to trigger and reconnect his feelings. And I think quite literally started to help reconnect the neurons in his brain. So lo- seeing me lose my hair and seeing the shape of my head and recognizing the flatness of the back of my head or seeing me have chemotherapy upstairs in our living room and looking around the corner at me, all of those things became, I'm so sorry, I don't want you to. It's beautiful. Please don't apologize. I'm laughing while you're crying. But, 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 but it's, you know, but, and also if anyone hears this, it's not like now Jake and I look at each other and we're kind of, you know, white doves are sort of falling out of our lives. We still argue, we still drive each other up the wall. You know, it's, it's a normal marriage, you know, but um, I did, I was so invested in Jake. I was so bound up in Jake. I so wanted him to live in the world. And I still feel like that about him. I still feel like 
irrespective of where Jake and I have ever ended up together, I really, one of the great achievements for me is that Jake is now back in the world again and whole and whilst different and whilst still recovering, he is, he's still that extraordinary person and he's still that lovable person. And that feels like that's nothing to do with me or my superpower, but I do think it's the sort of superpower of, of whatever love is that we manage to all communally be that through my brilliant children or our family or our friends and it was difficult and you know it's a grenade in the dynamics of family and there were anger and there was rivalry and there were jealousies and there were fights and you know it was not all perfect but within it what was absolutely true was that the biggest commitment and the greatest faith we had was our commitment to getting Jake better and so that became a really noble and worthwhile thing to do with one's life you know and 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 if anything what it's made me realize now is that I keep saying this and I forget it but I have to know that this is enough if this is all I get of life this is enough because to see Jacob's mortality challenged and then to experience my own mortality challenge then I realized that actually this little life that we get is enough it's got to be enough because so suddenly then you see the God in small things, you know, you do see this, the God, whatever that is in small things. So, you know, be it, Jacob drove me mad last night about something. And just before we went to bed, he went, let's not go to bed being angry with each other. And I really wanted to go to bed angry. With him. I, was going, I was looking forward to going upstairs and what, watching Happy Valley and being really Stewing. pissed off with him. But actually forcing me to stay with him and laugh with him again and hold him again and remind myself that actually it's a daily it's a day-to-day commitment every day I have to renew those commitment that vow to each other and you did um, get married in itself a really yeah we did get married I know yeah we got married in a poor guy I mean I have to be absolutely honest I think he would admit it as well I'm not entirely sure he was compass mentis when he walked down the aisle so uh, if you really want to get someone to marry you just make sure that they've just gone through some major kind of traumatic brain you know, encephalitis experience because they're much more so traumatic brain injury makes someone much more susceptible to getting married but um and he does look he does look extraordinary bewildered in all the photos but it was the most beautiful day yeah we just I mean it really basically it came around in about the spring of 2021 when Jacob was starting to recognize me and certainly the world was opening up for him a little bit more and I just felt this profound sense of needing us needing to be married and knowing that if anything happened to him again I would you know, just the legality and also, let's be honest, tax, um, that I'd be able to be there for him. So it was lovely. So it was just, it was just both our families and a couple of really good friends in our favorite Italian restaurant. And uh, he still thinks that he looked like Laurel Hardy in his enormous gray suit <laughs> that was immediately burnt when he, when he finally lost all his weight. But, um, but it was, yeah, it was a really special day. And actually it does feel different. It feels very different. I mean, the weird thing is he's embraced being married much more than me. He's much more into the idea of husband and wife, whereas I still find it very strange. And I'm, listen, I'm not an advocate. You know, I'm really not. I don't, you know, I've got most of the people I know and love have never got married. That doesn't mean they're not married. They just haven't done it legally. But I just don't know what we just needed to do. I guess in a a time of uncertainties, I needed to do something very traditional and very certain and that had a very obvious ritual. Although I have to say the guy who married us did look like KFC Colonel Sanders and that kept us laughing through most of the ceremony. (laughs) which is a lovely thing to do. Abby Morgan, thank you for the book. It's beautiful. And thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thanks so much. Lovely to come on it. Wow. Listening back uh, to that 
interview with Abby, I had I had a second cry. It's not that unusual for me to cry in an interview. Um, it's more unusual for me to cry listening back and reading it back. She has such a, well, starts such a fascinating story. Um, it's been recounted in much more detail, both in the book and in lots of other interviews. And I didn't want to kind of go over um, well-covered ground, but I would encourage you to either buy the book or go listen um, in more detail to the beats of that story because it's just an extraordinary thing um, to live through. But she also has um, such a helpful way of talking about both that and her work. And so we started with, uh, well, we started right before what she said was sacred. She said how much of a battle it is to keep anything sacred. And I think that's partly why I asked the question. Uh, it's partly why I asked the question of myself. What are my values? Why, why do I think I'm here? What am I trying to live for? Um, and keep the main thing, the main thing, um, in a world where that is, um, easily designed out of our lives. And she said truth and I, I knew she would. Um, but it's so interesting. She also said time. It sounds like her life is extremely busy, but she said truth. And it reminded me of the interview we did with Rowan Deacon, who is, um, a documentary filmmaker. And she had this thing that if you try and do something in the edit that isn't true, the film will fight you. Which stayed with me so much. Maybe more than, more than, yeah, stayed with me for a long time. And Abby seems to be grasping at the same thing. That even though she's telling fictional stories, not factual stories, truth is still very much at play. And a fictional story that f has truth in it is different from a fictional story that doesn't. And I think we all sort of know what she means, but it's really hard to describe what she means. You know, sometimes you just read a line in a novel and it, the, the shock of recognition, the shock of, yes, that is an accurate way of describing the world or how humans work or m my experience. Yeah, I would be very interested to think more about what we mean by that and why I both know it's true but don't know how to talk about it. Truth and fiction. Um, so clearly this child formed by stories, you know, from very early on, what is the shape of a life? What is the shape of a story? Um, and when I asked her what, what is she drawn to, you know, why does she tell stories? She said, um, a chaos, even chaos has a form that she's trying to make sense of her own mind. And that, um, yeah, there's, there's such a strong thread through this conversation and through her work is this meaning making, making meaning out of chaos, making meaning out of the events of our lives that can seem random. And uh, and how that is so is so clearly her practice of meaning making and how she is helping make meaning and how storytellers are helping make meaning um, for the people who read and watch and consume their work. 
fascinating thing to watch someone and read someone who is so clearly writing their own life as it unfolds. And uh, particularly with memoir or with personal essay, um, <laughs> the ability to be present in your life, even as you're thinking about how to describe your life, is, a, I think, a double-edged sword. It might both make you pay more attention and do the thing that Jacob obviously thought that it was doing for Abby for many years of like making her miss her life, making her absent. Um, there's something about being present that involves kind of surrendering to the ephemeralness of the moment, not taking a picture, not making a memory, not having this thing that I sometimes call pre-stalgia, which is being nostalgic in advance when you're still there, but just letting it pass like le being in it and then letting it go and uh how difficult that is actually um she's so honest she really is just delightfully honest about herself in the way that makes her very lovable the vulnerability and the earnestness and the worry and the hypervigilance and the the like why did this happen why did this happen which is so deep in so many of us, right? Like any kind of suffering that comes up close to us busts our previous, sort of reveals our previous um, default assumptions, whether that's, you know, about deserving things, whether we've sort of imbibed meritocracy, whether it's about a kind of prosperity gospel, whether a religious or a secularized version, whether it's a kind of like uh, punishment and reward frame, Su suffering really kind of goes deep. This this why question is so deep in human beings and she's so raw with it and so honest. And she says, you know, um, I can't believe I'm saying this on air. And again, this is this like forcing herself to say things that are a bit embarrassing. It's so humanizing and so lovely. You know, the way that she surrenders to the universe and she says, uh, universe, it's in your hands. And so many of the people I've spoken to, whether Kate... Bowler or um, Nick Cave, Clover Stroud, even Oliver Berkman actually more recently around time. I just have this such a strong sense that part of growing up as a person, part of growing up spiritually in my language is knowing when to surrender, like knowing when things are not in our control. It's that old, old serenity prayer, right? Teach me to know the things I can change and the things I can't change. <laughs> you know, to accept the things I can't change, to surrender, to unclench against the circumstances of our lives. Oh, that's wisdom. Um, and the other thing that comes through so strongly in the book and in Abby's conversation is how powerful the love she has for Jacob is and how um, rigorous, even starting to write the book as a play because he is an actor, his previous career is an actor, and she was thinking, how can I get him back on the stage? You know, the seriousness and the fierceness of that kind of love. And I'm questioning myself here, but honestly, my first thought is, is a woman's love? Is the care of a woman's love? And it's probably because I've been watching, <laughs> highbrow reference alert, Queen Charlotte. Yes, the Bridgerton prequel, which is very good. Um, about Queen Charlotte and the monarch who was known as Mad King George and how she fought for him and stood by him and loved him 
as he lost his mind. And, you know, she she's talking about meaning making and the strong sense from Abby is even though in some ways what they've been through is the worst possible thing, her commitment to loving him through it has been a rich source of meaning and purpose, right? It has been enough. She talks about if this is all the life we have, it's been enough. And yeah, very profound. Um, she talks about memoir as a call to remember, and it's making me think of memoir as a form of attention. And the way that she says, you know, she calls it, this is not a pity memoir. There's this ambiguity around it. There's a lot of ambiguity, I think, about writing by ourselves. I'm trying to write about myself a bit at the moment. And there's layers of, like, shame and gender stuff. And is it interesting? And why would anyone care? And I think the, the thing about the most particular is the most universal is so powerful. The reason Abby's story tells us something powerfully universal about love and about meaning making and about courage is so particular you know capgras syndrome incredibly rare your husband thinking that you are someone else for two years whilst you are responsible for their very significant care because they have very significant brain injury just you know most people are not going to go through it. But in telling the particularity of her story, she um, connects with something in all of us, I think. And I'm thinking about the particular in the universal because uh, the other night I was reading the Gospel of John with three memoir writers. What is my life? But um, I have accumulated lots of friends from this podcast and from elsewhere. And I happen to have some friends that are memoir writers and... Uh, we wanted to read some of the Bible together because they're interested in it as a text, as writers. And for me, it's a sacred text, but they were just interested in the text. And we started with the book of John. And uh, in the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the word. And it starts at this, like, mythical, mystic, universal level. You know, in the beginning was logos. In the beginning was communication. In the beginning was this really quite abstract concept. Uh, it was the light of the world you know, light in the darkness. And it becomes clear that the book is talking about Jesus, but it starts universal, right? It starts abstract. And it's amazing. It's amazing, amazing poetry. And it's relating to Genesis. We had a great conversation about it. But then chapter two of John is a wedding at Cana. <laughs> it's just like this delightful. Sometimes people talk about the incarnation as the scandal of particularity. Like God, forgive me for this theological rabbit hole but God is God we often assume you know phenomenal cosmic power yes I'm quoting Aladdin and uh you know omnipotent omniscient all of these very big abstract philosophical concepts but it's in the story that my faith uses to tell us something about God there's the particularity of a guy who goes to a wedding where the wine has run out. You know, it's so domestic and particular. And, yeah, 
in our particularity, in our incarnated incarnation, in our bodies, <laughs> in our embodiment, in our lives, in the day-to-day granularity of our lives, is something deeply profound when we pay attention to it, as Abby has been paying attention to it. Um, I'll probably leave it there because there is much more I could say, but I love this book. I love the way um, it is real about the way we want pity and we don't, you know, we want dignity and we want to be held, you know, that we don't want to suffer and we don't want our loved ones to suffer, but we do. And so we have to find our way through it together. Maybe the last line I'll leave you with, because I thought it was the most beautiful thing about the whole thing, is when, and I'm summarising, but she basically said, his mind had forgotten me, but his body remembered me. Extraordinary. You have been listening to The Sacred. (laughs) My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our production team are Daniel Turner, Lizzie Harvey and Drew Hawley. Our music is by Luke Stanley and in there are vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk. Mm-hmm.